Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. My guest today um, is Nicola Milanese, a director of European Alternatives, a poet, a philosopher living in Paris, co-author with Lorenzo Marcelli of Citizens of Now, How Europe Can Be Saved from Itself, and a good colleague from the uh, Europe's Futures Programme at IWM. Welcome, Nicola. Hi, Leszek. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for accepting the, the invitation. So, um, uh, I, I wanted to talk today with, with you about the French elections, but uh, considering that this is the day when European Council will um, make a Europe, um, Ukraine uh, will grant it a candidate status for the European Union, I think it is important, and Moldova, of course, Ukraine, Moldova, a candidate status for the members of the EU. I wanted to ask you first, do you consider it as a mere symbolic gesture or do you think it's really a historic watershed moment for the for the EU and Europe in general? Um, I think that we shouldn't downplay it uh, too much. I think that it marks a clear uh, orientation, both of the European Union and of Ukraine. I think that this, the statement could have come earlier. It could have come at the Versailles summit. It would have been better uh, had it come earlier. I think that there's there's lots of reluctance on behalf of different member states, and it's a credit to uh, the Ukrainian government that in a way they've maneuvered the situation such that uh, the demand for candidacy status couldn't be turned down. I mean, I think there's no plausible way that the European Council could say no without handing a victory to Russia. Um, and so it's, it's credit to them that they've maneuvered it in such a way, uh, and Moldova's managed to kind of jump on the on the train. Uh, clearly, it doesn't change very much uh, materially. Um, candidate status doesn't bring any immediate benefits of any kind. And we know from the experience with the Western Balkans that uh, the process is potentially extremely long and and doesn't move very quickly. Uh, so um, I think the symbolic dimension of it can't be underplayed, but clearly it's not a historic moment um, in its full sense. And do you think that Europe in this way is trying to perhaps European Union is trying to make up perhaps for well not maybe uh, living up to the expectations of the Ukrainians especially I'm thinking like you know, Germany and France perhaps it's easier to grant the status which doesn't you know mean much in the end uh, than send a lot of heavy weaponry and confront Russia in a more meaningful way Mm, or do you think that there are, you know, other reasons for for this decision? Uh, do you think that Europe is being strategic in this way, or do you think that simply had no other choice and had to kind of go with the flow on this? Well, frankly, I think it had no other choice and had to go with the flow. I think mm. that there's different political actors in the EU are wanting to be able to say that the enlargement process is not dead, even if it looks dead from the Western Balkans uh, these last years. And in a way, the Ukraine situation provides them a sort of easy way out of that. They can say, well, something's happening about enlargement. You know, new countries want to join. We're issuing candidacy status uh, without really having to do anything which has any serious consequences in the near term. Uh, so it's kind of an easy way out of a, of a bind for them. Really, the the big decisions today are about what happens with Western Balkan countries, notably uh, Albania and North Macedonia, and whether their 
uh, candidacies and, 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 and negotiations can be jeopardized by uh, what happens in Bulgarian politics. That's, that's the tough decision that uh, the European Council is having to take today. Is, uh, is any of this a kind of compensation or a sort of mea culpa of the European major powers uh, for not having done more to support Ukraine? Um, maybe somewhere in, in the background there's that. I mean, there must, they, they must be aware, people must be aware that um, by now that this war didn't start earlier on this year. It started years ago um, that the Ukrainian people have been bringing about revolutions to become closer to Europe. You know, and, and in a way, it's, it's tragic that it's taken this much uh, to even get candidacy, candidacy status. But I, I'm not sure that the leaders are really acting acting as sort of histori- historians in that sense, even if some of them occasionally try in an amateur way to mm. give historical lessons. And there was a lot of talking in EU before the war about strategic autonomy. I had always uh, an impression that the emphasis is put on autonomy than strategy. And I'm wondering what's your take on the overall response of the EU to the, to the war? Is it like being strategic in a meaningful way? Um, do you see like a different level of I know, cooperation or different way of approaching issues? The war usually requires you know, to stand up to the you know, highest possible levels of commitments. And, and I'm, I'm wondering what's, 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 your, what's your take on, on this from the perspective of the, uh, of the main EU countries? You know, I think that the war really reveals how unserious this discussion of strategic autonomy was uh, prior to the war. Because again, the European Union has has been found unprepared. And there's lots of self-congratulation you know, earlier on this year about European unity and, you know, un- somehow unexpected unity between between the 27 and, 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 and people being happy to be working in coordination with the US and so on. I think that this self-congratulation is really misplaced. I mean, I think that the European Union, as is as it has done over the past you know, decade of crisis, has done the bare minimum uh, to be to be acceptable. And in this particular case, I think they've had to do it with an extraordinarily large amount of sort of twisting of arms by the US administration, which invested enormous amounts of time and personnel in going around all of the European capitals, explaining to people that, you know, this is kind of a serious situation and they really have to have, have to show some minimal degree of unity. So I think it, it shows that this strategic autonomy concept, you know, was just a discussion in, in thin air, really, uh, prior to prior to the Russian invasion. I think that the Russian invasion, though, does act as something of a, of a wake-up call, at the very least for European populations, if not for, if not for all of their leaders. And I think that it, there will be uh, some more strategic thought about about military capacity and security. I I don't really take the autonomy aspect of it that seriously. Really, I think that you know, recent events have shown that that the EU is still highly dependent on the US leadership. That puts us in a very perilous situation if, if US leadership suddenly goes in a direction that, that is not so favorable to the European Union. Um, but I don't think really that, 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 that we've, we've, we've woken up fully to that yet. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we've seen a lot of, well, support for Ukrainians from the, well, EU populations, and you, you can see a lot of solidarity, some even accused 
that is kind of like a racist in a way that the support didn't materialize in the case of previous waves of migration. I'm wondering, but do, do you think that that also means that the, the, this war means in general, I, I don't mean the you know, Eastern uh, Europe, but Western Central Europe populations understanding that we are in a different, more difficult times. And as with COVID, we need, uh, well, enormous resources to be deployed towards new challenges. So do you think that it's not really the, the wall which, uh, which is considered as, as a kind of EU's wall in a way that it would require EU population to go through the new hardships, which are, well, mounting actually. Do, do you think that from the perspective of, uh, well, France, Italy, Spain, this is kind of peripheral European conflict, which we don't want to be involved and with the passing of time, it will be actually harder to sustain the current level uh, of, of yeah, imposed future sanctions. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the populations now, not the government, because I think they are doing you know, quite, quite a lot, trying to do, uh, even more than the populations might require at the moment. I think, I, I mean, it's, it, it's, impossible, it's impossible to tell what, what entire populations are going to think in the future. But my, if I had to say something, I would say that I, I suspect that support for Ukraine, individual Ukrainians and the Ukrainian struggle will maintain its uh, levels or only drop uh, slightly over the coming uh, period. I mean, people are already talking about war fatigue, but um, you know, there's still enormous public interest in what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, there's been on the front page of every uh, newspaper site for, for months now. And still, when you look at the pages which are most viewed, people are still reading about what's going on in, in Ukraine. So I think there's still a strong interest. There's still a strong outrage at what, at what Russia has, has, has done. So I would anticipate that public support and solidarity will actually remain quite high. It's only, though, if, if people have the feeling that, um, that their governments are, in a way, uh, punishing them or not, or not paying attention to them with the excuse of uh, supporting Ukraine, that I think that the mm. situation will, will change. So to give the example of France, I think that people broadly will tolerate uh, higher petrol prices, higher heating bills. But they won't if it doesn't look like the government is doing anything else to help them or is not paying any attention to the fact that this causes social difficulties for a lot of for a lot of people. And it, and, and it won't if people sort of have the feeling that the Ukraine uh, war is being used as an excuse for doing other things that they may or may not support. Uh, so I worry, actually, about the loading of the uh, green agenda onto the Ukrainian situation, of course. Uh, the Ukrainian war provides, in a way, an opportunity to accelerate a, tra uh, a transition away from, um, from from some polluting industries. Uh, but uh, there's a risk of, of kind of politicizing that issue in an unnecessary way if people feel like, you know, really what the government is trying to do is increase the price of petrol and they're just using you know, the geopolitical situation as an excuse to not compensate uh, the people mm. who lose out from that. Then I think that there could be a risk of a kind of return of the yellow vest movement. And that would be extraordinarily dangerous because um, such social fracture would be uh, would be a sort of highly fertile ground for conspiracy theories, for uh, Russia's misinformation and so on. Right. That, that brings us to, to, the, to the issue of, of 
recent campaign and elections in, in France. And it seems that this approach of Macron, which decided to campaign for a very short time and play kind of the Europe's leader role for, for quite uh, well for most of the of, of the conflict, even though his calls to Putin were uh, well infamous in some circles. It seems that this strategy worked at least in the presidential elections, uh, well to the extent that he won them, uh, but uh, it didn't play out well uh, in the recent parliamentary elections. What would be, in your opinion, the main reason that he is the first? Well, for the so. First of all, he is the first one, uh, I think, since Mitterrand, who was re-elected uh, from Chirac, sorry. So it's been, uh, so it's been uh, like o- o- almost, I think, 20 years, right? But he's also the first one president in 20 years who is elected without the majority in the in the parliament. What, what do you think is the reason? Is anything changed since he became a president and um, and those elections? Uh, do you think that the population reacted uh, towards the Macron strategy in this way, as you described? Or do you think there are different factors, uh, like the momentum for the Melanchthon movement or, or other reasons that that made uh, that deprived him of, of majority that he was kind of sure to, to, to get? Um, well, I think that there's, there's, there's several different factors uh, at play. One is... is, is that of course the presidential elections and the parliamentary elections are very different kinds of elections. Um, there's uh, the presidential elections of the second round. You vote against the the person you you can't stand, and Macron was clearly elected uh, thanks to the mobilisation of people um, mm. on, more on the left uh, to him who, who who wouldn't tolerate the idea of Marine Le Pen being president. And you know, unfortunately. Throughout, that was the case already. The first time he was elected, it was the case the second time around. And, and throughout the whole of his presidency so far, uh, Macron has taken for granted the support of um, of, of those people. Uh, and that strategy starts to backfire the moment that the left and the centre left is able to organise themselves a little bit more effectively. And that's what happens in these parliamentary elections with, you know, for the first time since Mitterrand. The, the the left forces kind of all being under the same banner uh, of the noops um thanks to the thanks to the the kind of hegemony that Mélenchon was able to establish which was also a phenomenon you know, in the election five, in the presidential elections 5 years ago the unexpectedly high result of Mélenchon so that has been built on by the left and it fragilizes uh Macron's position of course we have to remember that you know, structurally, something has changed um, since Macron has has come into into power. It's that France has gone from being essentially a two party system to a three party system with 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 this kind of centrist Macron party um, emerging. And so, you know, when you're in a in a three party system, it's more difficult to get a parliamentary majority just by by mathematically, it's more difficult. And so, in a way, there's there is this sort of um, uh, tendency, which is happening in other European countries as well, to have to have uh, coalition governments, and, and, and France is just the newest uh, member of that club. Uh, Macron gave a speech last night to the nation, um, in which he he said that uh, he said, you know, this is this is like in other European countries, and we'll have to learn uh, to make agreements between between parties, either uh, uh, agreements throughout the whole parliament or on a case by case basis. But this message was extremely mixed with the same kind of 
arrogance that um, has annoyed a large part of the electorate over over the past five years, essentially saying, well, you voted for me and my program uh, and everybody else needs to agree with that. Uh, and if they don't agree with that, then, well, we'll find other ways of pushing it through. And, and you know, so there's on the one hand, this kind of discourse of, well, we'll have to do things differently. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the continuation of, well, doing things differently means doing what I said we're going to do. Um, and, and no appreciation at all, really, of the grave situation of social fracture that France is in. Uh, and, and that's neither there in the discourse, and nor has it been there most of the time uh, in, in the policies over the five over the past five years. I do think uh, personally that um, Macron government doesn't get enough credit for the way the pandemic was managed, at least in terms of the um, social support and in terms of keeping schools open. Um, I think that there's, uh, and people have been making very justified criticisms about uh, the chronic underfunding of hospitals and care services and nothing having been done to correct that. Uh, but I think that there, there is an element of, of crisis management and making sure that most people haven't lost out too badly uh, from the pandemic where, where Macron deserves a bit more credit than he's been getting. But it just the fact that he hasn't been getting any credit for that shows the social anger um, and also a kind of sense of betrayal uh, surrounding Macron, who when he first presented himself, presented himself as someone with two legs, walking with two legs, one on the right and one on the left. Um, and it's become incredibly clear that he's, he's just kind of hopping along on the right leg. Well, uh, I'm uh, you, you actually, well, praise at least to, to certain limits, uh, Macron uh, achievements during his presidency. And I was wondering how, I mean, is it like the clear kind of evolution from the candidate who was uh, at the beginning, at least, uh, coming from the left, at least from the uh, left government, and uh, moving to the right, seeing that perhaps this is where the voters are, or that there is some political space for him. His, I mean, his. It's looking from the outside. It's it's not very clear how we'll try to well describe him because on the one hand he seems to be very active, very dynamic in a way that uh, some say Jupiterian, right? He tries to achieve things in France and, and uh, on European uh, um, level. But at the same time, it seems that his methods, his kind of way of moving fast and break things doesn't convince everyone or, I mean, recently almost no one, uh, either on European level or in France. I'm wondering if it's more about the politics as such or maybe about the certain... Uh, features of the character. You mentioned arrogance. Uh, but on the other hand, I remember that well, after the Yellow Vest movement, he was able to go and approach people in the uh, city halls. It was pretty remarkable considering the level of hatred already towards him. I'm wondering how you, what you make of him as a, well, still an extremely significant figure, perhaps the most significant on the, on the European stage at this moment. Um, well, I mean, as 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 you hinted, was there's no doubt that he's he's courageous. I mean, the whole the whole uh, becoming president and and being willing to go out and speak on the street with people and so on. That I mean, he, he clearly has a lot of qualities as as an individual character. I think that the European nature of his of his proposals is is something really interesting that hasn't been. Uh, fully integrated yet. I think that a reason that Macron has been able to widen his base of support 
and get people to vote for him who otherwise might find him highly objectionable is precisely his European ambition. You know, I had I heard many people in the run up to the presidential elections this time saying I'm not happy at all with what Macron's done domestically, uh, but I'm willing to vote for him because he was able to get through the recovery plan at the European uh, level to respond to the pandemic, and that alone, you know, is much better than what could perhaps be expected from any of any of the other candidates. And so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. So I think that Macron marks a kind of Europeanization of politics in terms of Europe being a serious theme um, inside of inside of French politics. And in a way, I think that he even underplayed this. Uh, and I think that the Ukraine crisis um, dragged away a little bit um, attention from some of the things he could say, could say about achievements in a European space, for example, European agreement on adequate minimum wages, uh, which has been introduced under the French presidency. That's the kind of thing, if he took credit for it, uh, that could reach out to uh, a more centre-left electorate. And one area where the agreement of the left parties in France is totally incoherent is around Europe. They've got no agreement at all between La France Insoumise, which is basically anti-European, the Socialist Party, which identifies strongly with the current European construction, and the Greens, which want to have a federal Europe, they're totally on different sides of the of, of the argument. And that could have been exploited as a strategy to actually break apart this uh, this coalition. But Macron was clearly preoccupied with with other things and this kind of posing as a as a war president, even if France itself is not in war. And I think lots of people saw saw beyond that um, kind of media posturing uh, as well. So you know, he, he clearly it also has something to do with the with the current constitution of France uh, and the extraordinarily extraordinary focus that is put on the president himself. Um, I think that one of the most justified uh, things that Mélenchon has been saying, and he's not the only one, but he's been uh, saying it most forcefully over these past years, is that there has to be a new constitutional settlement um, in France at some point. Um, this system is going to become dysfunctional. I don't happen to think it's going to be right now with this parliament, uh, but I think that clearly French politics is going in a direction which is dysfunctional. Will Macron himself, you know, as he reaches the end of this term, his second term as president, have the courage and the foresight to say, you know what, we do need to change the way politics is working in France? I hope so, uh, but I can't be sure right now. In many ways, uh, because of the rise of Mélenchon, the People downplay the well the rise of in fact now after the breakup of the uh, of uh, NUPS, moving up of the of the Le Pen who's got like close to 1990 uh, MPs in the in the parliament and it's you know from the outside the France seems very much still well the country with well kind of left leaning socialist debate you know intellectual elites. On the other hand, it has kind of like a central uh, liberal uh, president, and still you have uh, well a significant. It's it's still not even a plurality, but you have like uh, around thirty percent of the voters uh, happy to vote for the uh, for the National Front and Le Pen. Uh, oh, now they call themselves different, but I'm I'm I mean, what kind of France it is, because it's not, I understand, of course, it's not what he used to be uh, under her father, but in many ways, it's it's scary that this colorful, 
um, kind of friends of the future, it's at the same time you you see this kind of like a dark forces emerging. And I'm wondering, do you agree with a lot of this kind of scaremongering which which exists around the Le Pen, or do you think that it really is the party kind of like new right, but it's not like a far right we should be afraid of, and she's moving to the center and. There are a lot of voters who feel excluded and underrepresented that are voting for for the for for her. And you know, we, we should not be afraid if one day this would become a part of coalition or perhaps even you know rule France as a president. What was your take? How would you how do you explain this phenomenon to the people not living in France? Uh, well, I mean, I think first of all, we should absolutely uh, be afraid of, of, of Marine Le Pen and her sympathizers or you know, not afraid, but determined and clear uh, in our commitment to, to combat this phenomenon. And it's highly regrettable that um, some of the defeated uh, en marche candidates supporting Macron after the first round of the, of the parliamentary elections didn't make a clear signal that their supporters should vote against the far right uh, in the second round, um, and you know, there's some uh, some there's some responsibility there both on those individuals and also um, on the Macron presidency and Macron government itself, which has done plenty over the past five years to ensure that the alternative, at least at the presidential elections, is basically Le Pen or Macron, because Macron knew that that was a winning formula uh, for him, and so measures haven't been taken to to combat what is uh, still, despite perhaps a slightly uh, more friendly appearance, uh, a nationalistic, xenophobic, you know, anti-women's liberation uh, party, um, which clearly has a core of support, but is also able to uh, pull in a lot of people who want to protest against the way the, the politics is working in France these days. And and social inequality and the sense that certain um, uh, parts of the territory are, are basically abandoned um, by by the centre. Uh, that's particularly the case in the north, um, but not only. And, and so, um, you know, the fact that now Le Pen has a, a parliamentary group um, can even be trying to become the to, to have responsibility for important parliamentary committees in the French Parliament is is an extremely serious uh, development, and, um, and and certainly people in in the rest of Europe should should be taking it serious as well. From my perspective, you know, the, the, Le Pen has been winning uh, coming coming top in the European elections. Uh, in France now for several several occasions, that really should have already been 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 the wake up call. But it's unfortunate that these elections are always taken as kind of secondary elections. But it was inevitable um, that, that that the progression would go that that then the national parliament would would have a a far right group as well. So I mean, it it's dangerous. Um, it's dangerous both in, in France, but also because Marine Le Pen and her sympathizers are extremely active in terms of building support in other European countries and creating alliances. The, the possibility of, of Fratelli d'Italia winning in Italy, I think, now has increased because of what happens in France. And, you know, there'll be all kinds of contacts going on 
between the French far right and the Italian far right scheming for, for how they go even further. So it's undeniably a very, very serious situation. So if you think, uh, getting slowly to the, to the end of our conversation, so if you think about the European consequences of the recent French elections, but perhaps also of the future directions for, for Italy, as you mentioned, because now with Draghi, it seems that Italy is firmly in the center and mainstream back on the stage, but it's perhaps not going to last forever. If you if you think about the next European elections or in the next couple of years for the for, for the EU, do you think that's kind of way like a containment of the national populists will will be uh, a factor, or do you think that actually kind of normalization or extreme emotions which might be evoked in in certain countries or by certain groups will will prevail, and we might see the uh, well the duration of the of already a, a dire situation in which we are. Which we are now. How you how you think about the the dynamics of the European politics when it comes to populism and, and nationalism? Well, I think that the Macron presidency or, or the French presidency of the European Council these months was supposed to be a transformational moment for the European Union. I mean, it was almost set up with with that in mind that that Macron would be able to lead a new a new wave of of reform and and renewal of of the European Union, and that. Uh, because of the poor election results, is, is appears to be kind of collapsing before our eyes. Um, uh, European Council is meeting these days, and at some point there was a possibility even of treaty change happening, a new convention. Uh, just just yesterday, the German Foreign Minister comes out and says, in contradiction with the coalition agreement of the government, that now is not the time for. For treaty change and convention is an old-fashioned way of doing things anyway and surely the 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 weakening of macron is 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 a factor that has that has, has moved her to that position so it was supposed to be a transformative moment and heaven knows the european union has to transform its way of doing things if it's going to kind of pull through the next couple of years without having a new um illiberal explosion. Inflation is already a serious concern. It's only likely uh, to get more serious. And I'm by no means convinced, despite what the chair of the Eurogroup says, that Europe is in a much better position now than it was at the beginning of the financial crisis you know, over a decade ago. Um, and so there are really major reforms, fiscal reforms, um, reforms when it comes to, 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 to migration policy, if one thinks of the possibility of new waves or, or, of refugees fleeing famine as a result of, of this war arriving at European shores in big numbers uh, at the same time as the cost of living is going up uh, for average Europeans. You know, without a real, a real new way of approaching these problems, and Europe's potentially going to be in a very poor state in the next couple of couple of years. Um, I don't think it's all too late. I think that you know there's still uh, the basis in in European populations for um, quite as far-reaching uh, reform of the way the European Union functions. And you know people have seen over the past decade that the current uh, ways of doing things don't live up to to the legitimate expectations of the population. And they also see how when really 
forced into it by pandemics or by external aggression, the European Union is capable of doing things that previously they said were impossible. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that civic intelligence will be enough over the next couple of years mm. that uh, we force a few of these issues to move forward. Well, I think it's a good note to, to end our conversation. Thank you very much, Nicola Milanese was, was our guest. Thank you, Nicola, for a very insightful conversation. Thanks, Leszek. Bye. It was the Liberal Europe podcast. My name is Leszek Kaczewski. Please tune in for Ricardo Silvers next week. Uh, we'll, we'll see each other in two weeks. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share and give us a five-star review. You'll hear from me soon. Until then, please listen to Liberal Europe podcast next week with Ricardo Silvestro.